Hello, and welcome to the April 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. We apologize this podcast is a little late this month, but better late than never, and we have a lot of ground to cover. First up this month, there was a flurry of decisions from federal courts of appeals in the last month on the issue of Title VII coverage. Can you bring our listeners up to speed, Art? Okay. Uh, These are all cases which in previous podcasts we've mentioned were pending. Uh, The issue is whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 can be interpreted to extend to claims of discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity. Early in the history of the statute, the EEOC, the agency charged with enforcement, said no. Federal courts unanimously said no uh, for many, many years. Uh, the EEOC changed its position in 2015 in the Baldwin case, uh, saying that on long reflection and actually responding to developments in the courts, because by then a few district courts had actually gone this way, uh, said that they considered discrimination based on sexual orientation as a form of sex discrimination. Uh, Since then, we've had three new decisions by federal courts of appeals dealing with this issue. Uh, In all three cases, three judge panels of the respective circuits, uh, the, uh, the 11th, the second and the seventh in the order we'll be discussing them today, said no uh, because of circuit precedent. Three judge panels can't reverse the circuit precedent. Uh, So it would have to go on bank. One of them went on bank, and that's the biggest news here, Uh, the on-bank decision by the Seventh Circuit in the Hively case, which is one of the reasons we're a little delayed this month. It, It actually came out early in April, and since we hadn't finished up the issue yet, we decided to include it rather than defer reporting on it in May. Uh, So in the Hively uh, case versus Ivy Tech Community College from South Bend, Indiana, uh, for the first time since the passage of Title VII, a federal appeals court has ruled on the merits that sexual orientation discrimination claims are covered. Uh, And it was an 11-judge panel, the full on-bank Seventh Circuit, and they voted 8-3. to A majority of the judges in the majority of the on-bank panel were appointed by Republican presidents. Uh, So uh, to the extent that you attribute anything to that, it's a bipartisan decision. Uh, But we'll get back to that because we have two other circuits, uh, big circuits with big populations, lots of states covered, uh, that have still gone the other way. So we should talk about them, I think, in chronological order as they came out. Uh, The first on March 10th was from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, covers about half of the old Fifth Circuit in southeastern United States. And this case came from Georgia, Evans against Georgia Regional Hospital. And uh, Jamaica Evans was uh, employed as a security officer at Georgia Regional Hospital. Uh, Although she did not formally come out at work, she dressed in a masculine manner, groomed in a masculine manner, and was chided for not being womanly enough by her supervisor. And uh, uh, suffered harassment and so forth, and uh, ultimately it ended up in a Title VII uh, claim, which she brought on her own. And uh, based on the allegations uh, of her complaint, it sounded like you could make a uh, claim that she was discriminated against because of failure to conform to sexual stereotypes. Uh, But the trial judge said this is a sexual orientation case. Uh, It's not covered under Title VII, under uh, uh, circuit precedents of dismissed. Uh, The case goes up to a panel, somewhat unusually constituted panel. Uh, There was uh, Circuit Judge William Pryor, a Republican appointee. There was Circuit Judge Robin Rosenbaum, a Democratic appointee. And there was a federal district judge from Florida, Jose Martinez, sitting by designation. And Judge Martinez ended up writing the opinion for the panel uh, and relied on an old Fifth Circuit case. Uh, This is sort of odd because after the Fifth Circuit was divided and the eastern half was uh, made into the Eleventh Circuit, there was a general understanding 
that Fifth Circuit cases decided before the division into the two circuits would remain as circuit precedents for both circuits. Uh, so the reliance here is on a case from 1979, Bloom versus Gulf Oil Corporation, in which the case was actually disposed of on other grounds. And in what some people are even saying is just dicta, a throwaway line, the court sort of said, oh, by the way, sexual orientation discrimination claims are not covered by Title VII. No analysis, no discussion, single line saying it's not covered. And that was cited by the court as circuit precedent from which a three-judge panel may not depart. Uh, there are some judges, including Judge Rosenbaum, the dissenting judge here, who says, just a minute, that's from the old Fifth Circuit. There's no reasoning. It may even be called dicta in that case. We should be able to address this issue on the merits uh, as a sexual orientation case. Uh, but uh, Judge Martinez said we're bound. Judge Pryor, who had voiced uh, that view with the oral argument, he said, I think you need an on-bank panel to change the rules in the circuit. Uh, so we clearly had two votes out of three for the proposition that uh, the uh, three-judge panel was bound by circuit precedent to uphold the trial court's dismissal of the Title VII claim. Uh, as to sexual orientation being a cause of action. However, uh, Judge Martinez and Judge Rosenbaum seem to agree that uh, it would be possible for Evans to replead her case, now that she's not pro se, she picked up Lambda Legal as her counsel on appeal, to replead her case as a sex stereotyping case. There's certainly She's enough. a masculine lesbian. Yeah, a masculine lesbian who was criticized for being not being womanly enough. So the upshot is that you can bring a sexual orientation discrimination claim in the 11th Circuit. You just can't describe it as such, and you have to exhibit gender nonconforming behavior. And this is part of the point of a rather heated dispute between Judge Pryor, who wrote a concurring opinion, and Judge Rosenbaum, who wrote a partially dissenting opinion, uh, and chided Pryor as being inconsistent with his vote in a prior case, uh, Glenn v. Brumby, in which a panel of the circuit held that a transgender woman could bring a sex discrimination claim under the 14th Amendment against a public employer. Uh, and, and Pryor's opinion tries very hard to distinguish between status and conduct. He says Title VII outlaws status discrimination, uh, not conduct discrimination. Uh, but uh, the 14th Amendment, well, that's a little bit different. I don't know. It's, it's sort of a back and forth here, trying to distinguish between status and conduct. Uh, Judge Rosenbaum pointed out that, in fact, the Supreme Court has said that trying to distinguish between status and conduct when you're talking about sexual orientation is sort of bizarre, and they rejected the idea. They rejected it in Lawrence versus Texas. They rejected it in the uh, Martinez case, Christian Legal Society versus Martinez. Uh, so we have quite a dispute going on there. And uh, ultimately, the 11th Circuit has limited protection under Title VII for uh, gay people who can make a plausible gender nonconformity claim, but not if their claim is sexual orientation. And how you draw the line between those two is very difficult. Yeah. And, in fact, that's the point of the Second Circuit case. All right? So the Second Circuit case, Mr. Christensen, Matthew Christensen, uh, had brought suit under Title VII against his employer in New York. Uh, this is a private sector employer. Uh, and it's, it's sort of hard for me to understand why it wasn't brought in state court under the New York State and New York City human rights laws because they expressly forbid sexual orientation discrimination. But for some reason, people insist on running into federal court before we have really pinned down this Title VII issue. So he's in federal court, and his complaint was really premised as a gender nonconformity complaint because uh, some of the harassment that he suffered by the language that was used was clearly targeting him for being effeminate and for not meeting masculine uh, stereotypes. Uh, so it, it seemed pretty clear that that could be the basis of the case. However, in filing his claim in federal district court, he also filed supplementary claims 
under the state and local laws, which cover sexual orientation. So he included in his complaint factual allegations going to sexual orientation as well. And the trial judge uh, in the Southern District of New York, Catherine Polk Fela, said, well, you know, this sounds to me like it's really a sexual orientation case, and under Second Circuit precedents, I have to dismiss you know, and and once I've dismissed the federal claims, and he also had some other claims, but uh, none of them really survived the motion to dismiss. Uh, I'm not going to assert jurisdiction over the state law claims, so that gets rid of the case. Well, it goes up to the Second Circuit, and uh, once again we have a panel made up of uh, two circuit court judges and a federal district judge. Uh, the circuit courts uh, have quite a few vacancies. And district judges have been filling in to make up three-judge panels. Uh, so we had Chief Judge Robert Katzman and Circuit Judge Deborah Ann Livingston. And then we had District Judge Margot K. Brody from the Eastern District of New York out in Long Island and Brooklyn and Queens. And uh, what we got there was a per curiam opinion, which is not attributed to any of them, mm -hmm. and a concurring opinion written by Judge Katzman and joined by Judge Brody. Uh, so, and, and the bottom line is almost the same as the 11th Circuit. They said, we've got a bunch of Second Circuit cases that uh, clearly the circuit's precedent right now says that sexual orientation discrimination claims can't be brought under Title VII. But at the same time, when we look at the factual allegations here, it seems that Mr. Christensen can make a sex discrimination claim based on sex stereotyping. Uh, may have to do some repleting and amended complaint. And you go down to uh, maybe refocus the factual allegations a bit. But he should be allowed to proceed on that claim. But we uphold the district court in rejecting the sexual orientation discrimination claim. Uh, however, in this separate concurring opinion, Judge Katzman, joined by Judge Brody, says, and in an appropriate case, this circuit should go on bank and reconsider its position on sexual orientation claims under Title VII because, as he says, uh, there has been such an incredible change in the law uh, going to the point of sexual orientation. He said the, the landscape has changed, as he put it. And uh, he notes Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, of course, from 1989, the sex stereotyping case. But then he says he jumps forward and he says our precedents that we're relying on here, Simonton against Runyon, uh, from 2000, and Dawson against Bumble and Bumble from 2005, they predate the Windsor case. They predate the Obergefell case. Mm -hmm. They predate the EEOC's change of position. And we even have some district court judges here in the Second Circuit who think that our law has actually moved on. Uh, and uh, in particular, uh, a federal district judge in Connecticut had relied upon a relatively recent Second Circuit case accepting the theory that discriminating against someone because they're in an interracial relationship constitutes race discrimination and drawing the analogy. That must mean that discriminating against someone because they're in a same-sex relationship is sex discrimination. Mm -hmm. And from there, it's a short step to saying uh, discrimination because of sex and discrimination because of sexual orientation are not logically distinguishable. Uh, so Judge Katzman runs with it, and in his concurring opinion, he notes the various theories that have been identified uh, and uh, draws heavily on the EEOC's Baldwin decision. He says sexual orientation discrimination is sex discrimination for the simple reason that such discrimination treats otherwise similarly situated people differently solely because of their sex. And he says, sexual orientation cannot be defined or understood without reference to sex because sexual orientation is defined by whether a person is attracted to people of the same sex or the opposite sex or both or neither. And so the sex of the individual is part of the definition. Uh, so he says, how can this not be sex discrimination? Then he uh, focuses on the Second Circuit's uh, associational discrimination claim, the interracial relationship case, uh, Holcomb against Iona College from 2008, and draws the analogy there. And finally, he says, of course, there's the gender stereotyping theory. Uh, so far, the Second Circuit has refused to accept the argument that being attracted to people of the same sex as opposed to the opposite sex is a failure to conform with a gender stereotype. Uh, 
But he says, seems pretty clear to me. He says, uh, it is logically untenable for us to insist that this particular gender stereotype is outside of the gender stereotype discrimination prohibition articulated in Price Waterhouse. And said this stereotype about people, that women uh, should be attracted to men and men should be attracted to women and neither should be attracted to the same sex. He said this is as clear a gender stereotype as any. Right. Uh, so certainly uh, if this case were to go on bank, uh, we would have the chief judge of the of the circuit arguing very strongly. Yeah. Of course, I don't think Judge Brody could participate on bank because she's not a circuit judge. Right. Uh, as to whether it goes on bank, uh, the immediate reaction of Mr. Christensen's lawyer to the court's decision was, okay, now we'll litigate this as a sex stereotyping case. There's no need for me to go on bank and delay things any longer. Uh, but I think after the Seventh Circuit decision came out and she started getting press calls, uh, the attorney decided to rethink. And so there's a possibility that there might be an on-bank petition no, it's, here. it's a confirmed. It's confirmed now. Su- yeah. Susan Lask. Yep. Is going to file an on-bank. Yes. She, she told you at the dinner. She did. Okay, the gal had its annual <laughs> dinner last week, which I, I unfortunately had to Mr. miss. Okay, so they're they're going. For they're, they're going for it. Okay, all right, and then of course there is the Seventh Circuit, which is our breakthrough circuit. Uh, so this case involved uh, Kimberly Hively, who had been working as an adjunct professor uh, at Ivy Tech Community College in South Bend, Indiana. South Bend has an ordinance prohibiting sexual orientation discrimination, but it doesn't apply to the community college, which is a state entity, not a local entity. Uh, Indiana does not ban sexual orientation discrimination in its state law, and so she filed on her own a Title VII claim, and uh, she ran into a trial judge who said, look, the Seventh Circuit three-judge panels going back many years have rejected sexual orientation discrimination claims. In fact, there was one case in which uh, Judge Posner, uh, who was uh, holding that uh, a particular sex stereotyping claim couldn't go forward, he said in that case that the plaintiff was trying to bootstrap sexual orientation into Title VII by using the stereotyping theory. Uh, I, I wonder that nobody raised that in critiquing his concurring opinion in this case. He's been on quite yeah. an evolution. Yes, he has evolved. Uh, so at any rate, she suffered a dismissal from the trial judge, Rudy Lozano, in uh, in district court in Indiana, went to a panel. The three-judge panel said, our hands are tied. But two out of the three judges agreed on a portion of the opinion in which they said, and uh, it's time to reconsider this, yes. you know, as much as calling for on bank, not expressly doing it, but intimating that it would be a good idea if this case went on bank. Yeah. And so uh, uh, at that point, uh, Hively was represented. By Lambda Legal. Lambda Legal, right. Uh and uh, they uh, brought it to an on-bank panel, and I think just the decision of the circuit to grant on-bank review was a signal yep. of where things were going. Uh, and I believe you were at the oral argument. Yes. I listened to it the recording really of it. really well for Lambda and the EEOC. Really so well. the writing was sort of on the wall. We were just waiting to see what the vote would be. Yeah, and who would write yep. and what theories they would use. Uh, and... In the event, it's sort of interesting because uh, it's an eight to three decision, but not every judge agreed with every part of yeah. the majority opinion. So uh, Judge Wood, who's the chief judge uh, for this circuit, uh, Diane Pamela Wood, who was appointed by Bill Clinton, uh, wrote an opinion which was joined in full by five members of the panel and really joined in full by Posner as well. Yeah. I mean, he wrote a concurring opinion, but he mentioned early in the opinion that he joins the majority opinion, but he writes because he wants to propound his own sort of off-the-wall theories here. (laughs) Uh, And then there was a concurring opinion by uh, Judge Flom and Judge Ripple. They agreed with most of the opinion, but not the last part, which is sort of rhetorical. They agreed with the operative parts of the opinion, but they uh, focused on a particular theory uh, that worked for them. So... Judge Wood basically reviewed the various theories that have been propounded and agreed with several of them uh, and said for the circuit, it's, it's sort of time to interpret sex under Title VII to encompass this. She posed this as an interpretive issue. And she said there are these various theories that we can use to interpret 
sexual orientation discrimination to be a form of sex discrimination. And we've already rehashed them when talking about uh, Judge Rosenbaum's dissent in the 11th Circuit and the concurrence by Judge Katzman in the 2nd Circuit. So there's nothing really all that new there, in her opinion. Judge Posner... We should add one thing, though. They also formally overruled Ulane, the Ulane yes. case in the 7th Circuit, which... Which was a gender identity case. It was, and folks that are working on the, on the transgender issue more closely have said this was really a huge breakthrough because yeah. in every brief... Uh, in every case about transgender rights, that is oh, cited over and over, and over and over again. It's finally yeah, partly because the law. Supreme Court denied cert in that case right. as well. Uh, oh, but go ahead. But 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 in this case, uh, I, there's this one quote from Wood, which I think is terrific. She said, "It would require considerable calisthenics to remove the sex from sexual orientation. Yeah. The effort to do so has led to confusing and contradictory results, as our panel opinion illustrated so well." The EEOC concluded in its Baldwin decision that such an effort cannot be reconciled with the straightforward language of Title VII. Many district courts have come to the same conclusion. Many other courts have found that gender identity claims are cognizable under Title VII. So she's sort of sweeping the two together and saying that we should have a very broad concept of sex discrimination. Now, Posner, uh, he's, he, he agrees, he joins the majority, but he says, now look, We shouldn't be pretending that we're interpreting. What we should be acknowledging is that we're updating. He said, this is an old statute. It's more than half a century old. Times have changed incredibly. A few areas of of our social knowledge and understanding have progressed so rapidly as dealing with sexual orientation over the past few decades, and especially uh, since the turn of the century. And so he says, this isn't really about interpretation. This is about updating. Uh, he says, this is sort of, and this is going to get him in a lot of hot water with our fellow Republicans. He says, interpretation can mean giving a fresh meaning to a statement, which can be a statement found in a constitutional or statutory text, a meaning that infuses the statement with vitality and significance today. And being a long economics guy, his main illustration of this is the Sherman Antitrust Act. Uh, which was passed in 1890, he said, long before there was a sophisticated understanding of the economics of monopoly and competition. But he points out, for the past 30 years, that act has been interpreted in conformity to the modern, not the 19th century, understanding of the relevant economics. Basically, the courts have updated the act in order to keep it relevant to the present, in default of Congress amending it to do so. And uh, this, to me, immediately brought to mind a book that I remember reading many years ago uh, by Guido Calabresi, who's a judge at the Second Circuit, but at the time he wrote this book, he was a professor at Yale. It was published, I think, in 1982, called A Common Law for the Age of Statutes. He said, the problem is uh, we've gone from being a common law country to a statutory country. Common law is the law made on a sort of case-by-case basis by courts in response to changing circumstances. And it was the main way that most of our law was made during the 19th century. But toward the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, legislatures got much more involved in passing substantive statutes in areas that had previously been common law areas. and the problem with a, with, with a statute compared to the common law is that a statute freezes the language in the books at a particular time, whereas in common law you're dealing with concepts and doctrines that courts can mold and deal with. They can pull language out of old decisions and modify it. That's the common law method. Uh, so common law uh, methodology is a good way for courts to keep the law up to date by gradually adjusting legal doctrine to change and circumstances. This is what the dissent is, deeply yes. disagrees with. And, and uh, the problem is statutes are frozen, and there's a sort of inertia uh, that uh, Calabresi in his book identifies. He says, legislatures are too busy to go back and constantly be revising statutes. Unless there's a major blow-up, where a statutory interpretation uh, causes a scandal or outrage or something, this this archaic, obsolete statute is standing in the way, then a legislature may go back and amend it. But usually inertia means that old statutes are there on the books and they still are our law. 
And so what is a court to do when faced with new situations that cry out for new approaches, and they've got an old statute? Calabresi suggests that they create, they engage in some kind of dynamic, uh, uh, creative interpretations to update statutes to meet current needs. Because, after all, if the legislature disagrees with what the court has done, it can always come in and amend the statute to overrule the court. And so he encourages that in his book. He says, when faced with an old statute that was based on old understandings and old knowledge that is obsolete, courts should not feel constrained from adopting a new interpretation that updates the statute. And without referring to, uh, to Calabresi's book, Posner basically does that here. Uh, he says, this old law, quote, invites an interpretation that will update it to the present, a present that differs markedly from the era in which the act was enacted. Well, you know, it makes me feel awful old to think that someone is referring to when I was in junior high school as an era ago. <laughs> but it is. It is. It's, I mean, the, the world of the mid-1960s when Title VII was adopted is a different world from the one we live in today. Right. It's, it's a world that predates the Internet. It predates uh, most of the modern gay rights movement. It predates incredible developments in the courts in terms of uh, recognizing equal protection and due process claims of gay people. And it also predates the passage in now at least 22 states of laws forbidding employment discrimination based on sexual orientation. Uh, and federal bills that have passed the House at least once and the Senate at least once, unfortunately never in the same session of Congress, so we haven't gotten a national gay rights bill yet. But the point is, things have changed. And so Posner says, let's do it. He admits, he says, it's well nigh certain that homosexuality, male or fem female, did not figure in the minds of the legislators who enacted Title VII. But, he says, nothing has changed more in the decades since the enactment of the statute than attitudes towards sex. And... The funny thing is also, uh, I think Judge Woods does this in her majority opinion as well, Justice Scalia gives us the key. In, in his uh, opinion for the unanimous court in the Oncali case, uh, which recognized a claim for same-sex harassment under Title VII, uh, he said, look, we're not bound in interpreting statutes by what the legislature thought they were doing back when they enacted it. What they did was they enacted particular language. And we are free to give that language an interpretation that we think is appropriate in light of the overall purpose of the statute. And it can cover reasonably related evils yes. other than the principal see, evil. Right. It, this isn't the principal evil. In fact, it's not even in their mind an evil at all, most likely. They weren't thinking about right. it. And to the extent they were, they weren't planning to cover it. But that's neither here nor there. They adopted this language. And we've got this language to work with now. And we can figure out how to adopt an interpretation that makes sense in light of the developing case law under Title VII. Uh, so that's what Posner advocates. Now, we can't leave out his list of oh, his important famous list. gay people. Yeah, he's, he says... Culturally important. Uh, he said, homosexual men and women, and also bisexuals, defined as having both homosexual and heterosexual orientations, that's a bit weird, uh, who have made, quote many outstanding intellectual and cultural contributions to society. Think, for example, of Tchaikovsky, Oscar Wilde, Jane Addams, André Gide, Thomas Mann, Marlena Dietrich, Bayard Rustin, Alan Turing, Alec Guinness, Leonard Bernstein, Van Cliburn, and James Baldwin. And I, a very partial list. I think he outed a couple people there, yes, as I, I told you. So. I had never heard Alec Guinness. I had. Uh, I had uh, heard about Alec Guinness. I hadn't heard about Jane Addams. Yeah. Uh, and Marlena Dietrich, well, is, I, is it because she liked to uh, smoke cigarettes with long holders <laughs> and dress in a tuxedo? I don't know. And uh, Above the Law reached out to him, and he has he's since added Elton John to the list oh, okay. uh, since the decision yes, came out. Very, but. very partialist. But this brought something to mind to me that yes. I mentioned in the law notes. Uh, back many, many years ago, uh, Major League ball player Kurt Flood brought a lawsuit challenging under the antitrust laws the reserve system that was used in uh, Major League Baseball at the time. And Harry Blackman was assigned to write the opinion for the court. 
and he decided to include in an opinion his list of the greatest baseball players of all time. So he polled the members of the court and their clerks, and he came up with a list and included it in the opinion. And everyone was shaking their head and saying, Harry, what's he, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, the Supreme Court is not there to enshrine a list yes. in the U.S. reports of the greatest ball players of all time. But here it, here it goes. Uh, Posner has now enshrined in Federal Reporter, in Fed Third, <laughs> yes. for all time, a list of the uh, lesbian and gay men who have made important contributions. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it goes to the point that he says that, uh, you know, there's no reason to exclude gay people from protection under Title VII. In, in his con concurring opinion, Judge Flom took a rather narrower approach. He focused on a 1991 amendment that was made to Title VII in response to the Price Waterhouse case. Uh, one of the issues in Price Waterhouse was sex stereotyping. Another issue in Price Waterhouse was how to deal with a case where the plaintiff showed that a prohibited ground of discrimination played a role in the employer's action, but the employer showed that other non-discriminatory reasons also would justify the action they took, so-called mixed or dual motive cases. How to deal with those cases. Uh, and the court came up with an approach, and Congress wasn't happy with the approach. So Congress amended Title VII to say, if the plaintiff shows that their race, color, religion, sex, and national origin was a motivating factor in the employer's decision, they have established a violation of the act, regardless of the fact that the employer shows that it would have made the decision for some other non-discriminatory reason. However, if the employer does show that they made the decision for some non-discriminatory reason or would have, absent the, uh, the prohibited ground, that limits the remedy. Like you can't get a reinstatement remedy, and you might not be able to get a back pay remedy. But you can get declaratory judgment, and you can get an award of attorney's fees, and there might be some other remedies available in a particular case. Uh, so Judge Flom focuses on that. He said they made it clear that a decision doesn't have to be solely because of sex to violate Title VII, as long as sex played a role. And he says, so, you know, we can acknowledge here that sexual orientation or gender identity or something else played a role, but if sex played a role, that's enough to establish a violation under Title VII. So he said, and he also said, uh, one cannot consider a person's homosexuality without also accounting for their sex. Doing so would render same and own as words meaningless in dictionary definitions that define homosexuality in terms of whether somebody is attracted to persons of the same or their own sex. So he says, clearly sex is involved when people are discriminated against because they're gay. The dissent. Uh, the majority, uh, five out of the eight judges in the majority were appointed by Republican presidents. The three dissenters all appointed by Republican presidents, with Judge Sykes leading off. Sort of interesting that uh, uh, we have Judge Pryor in the 11th Circuit who was on Trump's short list, and we have Judge Sykes who was also reportedly not on the shortest suspicious, list. Suspicious or maybe not that suspicious. Well, she was on the list that uh, Trump published during the campaign yep. as a potential Supreme Court nominee. Right. Uh, so she, you know, she goes back and channels the prior case law of the circuit, and uh, she says the majority deploys a judge-empowering common law decision method that leaves a great deal of room for judicial discretion. So does Judge Posner in his concurrence. Neither is faithful to the statutory text, read fairly as a reasonable person would have understood it when it was adopted. The result is a statutory amendment courtesy of unelected judges. And this goes back to a question that Posner asked during the oral argument. He says, are statutes frozen in time? Or can statutory interpretation develop over time? And then he brought out during the oral argument his Sherman Act example. Uh, so clearly there is a dispute here about a basic principle of judging when it comes to interpreting statutes. Yeah. Uh, are we bound by the understanding of the generation that enacted a law? Uh, it's a, a dispute about constitutional interpretation and it's a dispute about statutory interpretation. I've even seen one blog post that suggests it's different for the Constitution and for statutes because the Constitution tends to speak in generalities and statutes tend to speak in particularities. So this blog uh, writer said, I can see interpreting the Equal Protection Clause 
to protect gay and transgender people because it doesn't specify prohibited grounds. It just says everyone is entitled to equal protection of the law, and we can develop that concept of what equal protection means over time. Uh, clearly, the generation that passed the 14th Amendment did not think that they were rendering unconstitutional segregated public schools by race. They thought that was perfectly fine. Uh, the generation and the immediately succeeding generation that ratified the 14th Amendment thought that segregating railroad cars was fine in Plessy versus Ferguson. The understanding changed over time. But it says Title VII and many statutes are different because it lists the characteristics. And by listing the characteristics, that is uh, the judgment of the enacting body as to which characteristics should be covered, and it will be unfaithful to the representative legislative process to now reinterpret those terms to mean something that the drafters and the people who voted for that statute and, and the people who were contemporaries who read about it when it was enacted and had to comply with it, that that's inappropriate to statutory interpretation. So this dispute will play out. Uh, Judge Sykes articulates it well in her dissent. Uh, it is uh, a majority view in some circuits, a minority view in the Seventh Circuit. It'll be interesting to see what happens because uh, Lambda filed a, an on-bank petition in the Eleventh Circuit after the Evans decision. Now uh, we're told that the uh, Christensen decision will probably end up going on-bank as well. Uh, so these disputes will play out. Well, Is it legitimate in interpreting a statute to, in effect, amend it? Because this is, in effect, an amendment. For over half a century, the EEOC consistently said that it doesn't cover sexual orientation claims. Uh, this firm line began to break down after Price Waterhouse when courts started to entertain gender identity claims, because uh -huh. those are very clearly uh, sex stereotyping claims. It's, it's not hard to make the argument with gender identity for someone who's transitioning changing their appearance, uh, changing their name, maybe undergoing surgery, you know, taking hormones. Yeah. Uh, it's easier to make the gender stereotyping claim there. Uh, the, the odd thing here, and I think Rosenbaum pointed out in her 11th uh, Circuit dissent, it's sort of weird. You're saying that gay people are only protected if they act out in a way that defies sex stereotypes, but sort of a run-of-the-mill quote-unquote, straight-acting, a straight-appearing gay person is not protected. That doesn't make sense. Right. That doesn't make sense. Uh, so we'll see how this develops. It's, it's going to be very interesting, especially now that the Supreme Court's back to full strength. Uh, we, they're unlikely to punt on, on a cert petition on the theory that they're going to be evenly divided. So. Although the scary thing is, and we'll talk about this more yes. later, but, the fifth but one tweet uh, that said, perhaps Judge Justice Gorsuch's first act will be overturning Hively, which would uh, not be not necessarily. Not be good. So not we'll, necessarily well, who knows? So. Maybe uh, we'll pick up Justice Thomas. Ha-ha, <laughs> 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 yeah. that's a joke. All right. Uh, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about the Supreme Court and the latest developments in the Gavin Grimm case. We are back. In our last podcast, we taped the day after the parties told the Supreme Court that it should still decide the case, despite the Trump administration rescinding the guidance at the heart of the case. What happened next, Art? Okay. Well, the Trump administration, uh, on February 22, issued its letter rescinding its guidance. Uh, and then it also sent a letter to the Supreme Court. Uh, and it said, the guidance isn't there. What the Fourth Circuit said the district court should defer to isn't there. We think you should drop this case. Uh, so on March 6th, the Supreme Court announced that it was vacating the decision by the Fourth Circuit in the case of Gavin Grimm, and it was remanding the case or sending the case back to the Fourth Circuit for further consideration in light of the guidance document issued by the Department of Education and Department of Justice. Uh, the case had been scheduled for oral argument on March 28th, so it was dropped from the court's calendar. And this result wasn't unexpected, of course, although, as, uh, as Matt mentioned just now, the parties had said to the court, okay, don't decide the first question on which you granted cert, but you can still decide the second question on which you granted cert. But it would be unusual for the court to decide a question 
on which they granted cert when the lower court hadn't decided it, uh, from which the appeal was being taken. Uh, because the first, Fourth Circuit premised its ruling on uh, our deference, uh, a, a Supreme Court doctrine that said the district court should defer to an administrative agency's interpretation of ambiguous language in a regulation. And the regulation at issue in this case uh, says that public schools can have separate men's and women's facilities mm-hmm. uh, for, for changing, for locker rooms, for gym class, uh, restrooms, so long as they are equal in quality. Uh, and that was interpreted by some to mean that you can tell a transgender boy, stay out of the men's room because we consider you a girl. Well, the point is that the regulation doesn't say anything about what you do with transgender people, which facilities they can use. So it's ambiguous. Uh, so the decision by the Department of Education to issue uh, a letter in this case interpreting uh, that regulation to require allowing someone to use the facilities that are in accord with their gender identity should be deferred to if it's reasonable. And the Fourth Circuit said it was a reasonable interpretation of the statute because the overall purpose of the statute is to forbid discrimination in public schools and to make sure every student can use an appropriate facility and be appropriately accommodated. Uh, So the uh, Fourth Circuit had reversed Judge Dumar's decision dismissing the Title IX claim in the case and said, uh, you you have to defer to this. And so Dumar issued his preliminary injunction uh, to allow Gavin Grimm to use the boys' restrooms at his high school while the case was pending. That was stayed by the Supreme Court after the Fourth Circuit refused to stay the preliminary injunction. And, uh, of course, when the Supreme Court sent the case back to the Fourth Circuit, okay. uh, one of the first things the Fourth Circuit did uh, in an action that occurred after I finished writing the, the April issue, so it won't be reported unless you've I altered. added a paragraph. Okay, you added a paragraph. So on April 7th, uh, the Fourth Circuit issued an order vacating the district court's preliminary injunction, but it didn't remand the case to the district court in that order. It didn't even mention doing so because what is still pending before the Fourth Circuit is Grimm's appeal of Judge Dumar's decision dismissing his Title IX claim. And the mere fact that the Trump administration has withdrawn the guidance doesn't end the issue of how to interpret Title IX. For one thing, they didn't take a position in their letter about how to interpret Title IX. They said it needs more study. We're withdrawing the Obama administration's interpretation because it needs more study. Then it went on to say that uh, local governments and school districts should be making this decision. But it didn't say how they should be making the decision. It just said it should be left up to them. It shouldn't be a matter of federal law. But that's not for the Trump administration to say. Uh, The issue is, has Congress made this decision in effect by passing Title IX and imposed an obligation not to discriminate because of sex on educational institutions that get federal funds. Uh, That makes it a federal issue, what it means. So the Fourth Circuit now, in the absence of any administrative interpretation to defer to, has to decide as a question of statutory interpretation and of interpreting the regulation, uh, which restroom does a transgender student have a right to have access to? Uh, So it goes back to the Fourth Circuit. In the meanwhile... Uh, two of the three judges who were on the panel in this case uh, were moved to say something, not just issue an order. Uh, Judge Andre Davis wrote a brief concurring opinion, which uh, Judge Floyd authorized to say he agreed with, in which he called Gavin Grimm a civil rights leader. And basically, I think, set out the argument uh, that Title IX should be interpreted to cover this case. Uh, but obviously speaking for himself with, with Judge Floyd uh, signifying his agreement, Judge Niemeyer, who was the dissenting member of the Fourth Circuit panel, agreed to the publication of this. Evidently, he had to agree to the publication of this, but didn't join it. So we've got a situation here where the Fourth Circuit is going to be reconsidering this case and ultimately probably have to go on bank. Uh, the, the interesting thing, and this sort of bleeds into our next story, is that there are a bunch of cases pending in district courts in the Fourth Circuit 
and including, I think, at least one appeal to the Fourth Circuit itself uh, about North Carolina HB2, which presents this issue in a di- slightly different context. Yeah. So we'll get we to that next. We should also note, though, that because they did not agree to expedited briefing, Gavin's going to graduate in a oh, yeah. uh, month and a well, half. Well, even with expedited briefing, I mean, you, so. you, you wouldn't have new oral because you need new oral argument. Yeah. You wouldn't have a decision on this before he graduates. So he's never going to get to use, yeah. except for that brief period before some parents complained to the school board. When he was using the boys' right. room with no problems, he's never going to get uh, to use the boys' room. So I think room. that's part Until of Until he's an alum, and he judge, goes back uh, for reunions. <laughs> what Judge Davis was trying to say in his concurrence is that yeah. the justice system really failed Gavin here. Right. Um, and if it comes out that he wins the case, it's going to be... But I'm wondering, once he graduates, is this case moot? Well, right. That's another issue yeah. that we have to consider. I mean, he was attacking a policy of the school board. Uh, the policy was aimed at him. I haven't read that there are any other transgender students in Gloucester County who were seeking to use restrooms. Right. So we'll see. I mean, they, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the county files a motion to dismiss the whole case as moot, yeah. which is a possibility. That doesn't mean that this issue won't get decided. Because there are cases pending elsewhere in the country. Right. All right. As Art mentioned, we will take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss the so-called repeal of HB2 in North Carolina. We are back. After a huge backlash and a change in governors, the state legislature in North Carolina finally acted to change, if not really repeal, HB2. Can you tell our listeners about it, Art? Well, it's it's sort of like what the Trump administration was trying to achieve with Obamacare in Congress. Uh, repeal and replace. That is, don't just repeal and leave things with no, no law, but uh, put something in its place. Uh, so now we have HB 142, which was enacted in place of HB2. And it does three things. Uh, This passed by overwhelming margins in the state legislature, but uh, Democrats in both houses voted against it, mostly. Uh, First, it repeals HB2. So HB2 is formally repealed. And there were a lot of things in HB2 besides this uh, transgender restroom issue. So it's a lot of bad stuff got repealed. It enacts a new measure preempting any governmental body or entity in North Carolina from, quote, regulation of access to multiple occupancy restrooms, showers, or changing facilities, except in accordance with an act of the General Assembly. So the legislature has basically reserved to itself the authority to adopt any kind of uh, employment practice or public accommodations practice involving restrooms, showers, or changing facilities. Only the state legislature can legislate on that. Right. But they haven't yet. So HB2 is repealed. The legislature has not passed anything on this, and it would have to get passed a veto by Governor Cooper, most likely. Although they do have a supermajority yes. in the legislature. They have a capability of doing it. Uh, and then the third thing, it provides no local government in this state may enact or amend an ordinance regulating private employment practices are regulating public accommodations until December 1st, 2020. So until after the next presidential election, and I think the next gubernatorial election, uh, in the state of North Carolina, local governance may not legislate on private employment practices, that is, private sector, or public accommodations at all, for any reason, on any subject, which includes, of course, that they can't ban sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Now, they could after that date, but evidently they couldn't apply it to uh, restroom showers or changing facilities unless by then the General Assembly has passed something and then it has to be consistent. So what they're sort of doing in the meantime, until the General Assembly passes anything, is they have deregulated access to multiple occupancy restrooms, showers, or changing facilities in public buildings in North Carolina, which means theoretically transgender people can use whichever restroom they want to. And if anyone tries to chase them out, they don't have any legal redress. 
but there's no prohibition. Right. On the, I, I think that's – I mean this, this raises all kinds of questions. Right. For example, uh, one of the things that uh, proponents of HB2 were arguing for is they, they said uh, that these local ordinances like the Charlotte Ordinance, which really sparked the passage of HB2, uh, they're going to let men – go into ladies' rooms and harass the women and attack the women and blah, blah, blah. Uh, these arguments were based on the belief that transgender people are just masquerading and are not really the gender that they identify with. Right. But we've had increasing acceptance by courts and, and some legislators that they are, in fact, that change gender identity is, uh, gender identity itself is a real phenomenon uh, there's mounting evidence that it has biological basis, that it's not just psychological, but even if it was just psychological, it's real. It affects how people live their lives. Uh, and that's pointed out in, in Judge Davis's wonderful uh, opinion in the Gavin Grimm case that we just referred to in the previous I think the, sort of the real story here is there's a state legislature and a governor who are 180 degrees apart. Right. They were in, under enormous economic pressure to at least fit, you know, get rid of the mandated discriminatory bathroom policy that was, uh, you know, explicit in HB2 uh, in order to get NCAA uh, games and stuff back into the state. So they reached a really sort of bad compromise to at least take that out. But they want, you know, the, the state legislature there does not want there to be an LGBT non-discrimination state law or local ordinances. They just right. don't. I mean, it's awful, but they don't. And uh, they made it clear. But after the next general election in North Carolina, things could change. Right. Who knows? And there's a lot of uh, gerrymandering uh, litigation in North Carolina that might help us change the legislature there enough to, to do something else. But We shall see. Or the Republican Party may start to evolve on sexuality issues. That would be welcome. I'm knocking on the wood of your desk. Well, five out of the eight members of the majority in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, that includes people appointed by Ronald Reagan and people appointed by George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. So, yep. All right. We will take our last short break. And when we return for our Of Note segment, we will discuss the confirmation of now Justice Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court of the United States. All right, we are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. On Monday, April 10th, after Justice Scalia's seat was vacant for 14 months, Judge Neil Gorsuch was sworn in as Justice Neil Gorsuch, and we now have a full nine-seat uh, Supreme Court again. Mm-hmm. How did we get here, and what does it mean, Art? Well, how we got here is Scalia died. Obama nominated Judge Merrick Garland of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the chief judge of that court, and the Republicans absolutely refused to act on the nomination. Uh, since they controlled the Senate, they controlled the Judiciary Committee, which did not hold hearings, they control what gets to the floor. So Judge Garland never got a vote. And uh, Democrats accused the Republicans of stealing the seat. Republicans said that when a Supreme Court vacancy opens during the last year of a lame duck president's term, the appointment should be reserved to whoever wins the presidential election. Although a few of them were heard to say during the campaign when public opinion polls suggested that Hillary Clinton was going to win, that they would do everything they could to block any appointment she made to the Supreme Court. Uh, so the possibility loomed that the Supreme Court would be shorthanded until at least midterm elections if the Democrats picked up enough votes. Right. That's, that, that was weird, this t- turning the Supreme Court into a political football. But uh, you could say that the Supreme Court has turned itself into a political football by some of its decisions, most notably Bush v. Gore, Citizens United, uh, quite a few, a Hobby Lobby. I mean, they've made themselves a very political body. At any rate, what does Judge Gorsuch's addition to the court in place of Justice Scalia portend for LGBT legal issues? And uh, the big legal issues liable to go there are interpretation of Title VII, uh, finally getting from the court in some appropriate case uh, a holding as to the level of scrutiny for sexual orientation and gender identity claims under the 14th and 5th Amendments, uh, and the extent to which people 
with religious views about homosexuality can claim exemption from complying with neutral state laws. Uh, and in fact, one of the first signs to look for, which may even eventuate before people get to listen to this podcast, because the court is holding a conference this week on pending cert petitions. Uh, this has been before the court since last summer, and it's been listed on their agenda several times since the beginning of the year. Uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from Colorado, Judge Gorsuch's home state, uh, asking whether a uh, person who provides goods or services uh, to people having weddings may, based on his religious objections, refuse to provide such goods or services to a same-sex couple. Uh, the Colorado Human Rights Agency and the state courts said no, that you don't have a, uh, a right under the First Amendment or the cognate provisions of the Colorado Constitution to fail to comply with a neutral anti-discrimination law. Neutral in the sense that it doesn't target religion. It applies the same non-discrimination principle to everybody. Uh, and this is based very profoundly on a Scalia opinion, Employment Division versus Smith, from uh, more than 25 years ago. It's been solidly established in U.S. law that there is no free-floating religious objection exemption from complying with general state laws in the U.S., including anti-discrimination laws. Now, there's a statutory exception created by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act by Congress and by similar acts in over 20 states uh, and it is hotly contested the degree to which those statutes in states where they exist may privilege religious objectors from having to sell goods or services to same-sex couples. In Colorado, there is no such RFRA, and so it was purely a question of constitutional law. Uh, in uh, the Hobby Lobby case, uh, which was about uh, the requirement under Obamacare for health care plans to provide uh, certain forms of contraception to uh, women who were participants in the plans, uh, the court said the Religious Freedom Restoration Act allows an employer with religious objections to refuse to provide the coverage. Uh, and that was a five to four decision. I don't think the addition of Judge Gorsuch changes that because uh, Judge Scalia voted the way Judge Gorsuch would most likely vote. And he was on the Tenth Circuit that decided the Hobby Lobby case before it went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the court now grants cert in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Because the only reason for granting cert would be if at least four members of the court are thinking of either overruling or redefining the rule of Employment Division versus Smith which would be a revolution in American law. It would be an incredible extension. In fact, it would be conferring special rights on people with religious objections to homosexuality. That's terrifying. Yeah. They're always accusing the gay rights movement of seeking special rights. Well, the some elements of the religious community are now seeking special rights. And the real tragedy here is that we had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to tilt the Supreme Court maybe in a right. different the direction. The Supreme Court maybe? hasn't had a Democratic majority since uh, Reagan started appointing we, judges we in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there are there's a lot of speculation. There's, there's a high likelihood that uh, Trump will get a second appointment to the court. Maybe even a third because uh, out of the uh, majority that made up uh, you know, the five-member majority in the Obergefell and the Windsor cases, uh, three out of those five are among the oldest members of the court. Yeah. I mean, two of those five are among the youngest members of the court appointed by President Obama. But if any one of those three who were in the Obergefell and Windsor majorities retires or otherwise vacates their seat on the court and Trump gets to appoint a replacement, that will swing the court pretty sharply to the right including on gay issues, if it's Kennedy. I think the only thing we can hope for is that we see some more Trump flip-flops. I know he flip-flopped on NATO today and yeah. Chinese currency manipulation, <laughs> so maybe we can get him to flip-flop on we got to work on Jared and Ivanka. judges. we got to get, him, get uh, Jared and Ivanka to start lobbying for us. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, I'm also going to plug uh, the professor sitting next to me is going to be installed as the Robert F. Wagner Professor of Labor and Employment Law. 
here at New York Law School on April 26th. So if you are available that evening, please come to the ceremony. But but you have to RSVP. So yes. so contact Legal for uh, information about how to RSVP. So let's try to pack the house for, for art. Uh, all right, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in May.